0: All right. Did we have a great VBS last week or what? Thank you. Thank you for volunteering. Thank you for bringing your kids and grandkids. And I know that uh, many, many lives were changed. I want to invite you to kneel with me before we open God's word together. God, we thank you we can come into this place today and to worship you and to praise you and to center our hearts and minds on who you are. God, we thank you so much for the great week we had last week in VBS and for the other camps that are coming up. God, I pray that the seeds that were planted will grow and take root. God, right now, speak to us as we open your word, we ask. God, we wanna hear from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I love Houston. I love our city. If you're just new to Houston, we are the fourth largest city in the United States of America. And I think that Houston is the friendliest, biggest city in the world. We are. Now, and we we are the most diverse city in all the United States. We surpassed New York years ago. And it's amazing how well we all get along. If you don't believe that, just watch what happens in our city when a crisis takes place. We bond together like no one's business and help each other out. I love our city. Uh, We have... uh, a great fire department, a great police department. We have... Okay, Med Center. No, we have one of the best, one of the best Med Centers on planet Earth. NASA, Astrodome, Reliant, come on. Minute Maid, we have great sports teams. We have great food. My goodness, the types and varieties of food here. If you want to stay lean, don't move here. (laughs) Of course, if you like to shop, we have great shopping. It's incredible. Uh, Houston is a phenomenal city. I love Houston. But I can say there's one thing that I don't love about our city. I don't love driving on our freeways. I don't, I really don't, I don't, know. I don't know what happens to us. What happens to us? We, we, we get on the freeways and we forget everything that Mr. Rogers taught us about being a good neighbor. We do, we just forget about it. I mean, just, you know, you're on that ramp and you're trying to get on I-10 or 610 or whatever, and you're just trying to get on your blinkers there and and the traffic's really backed up and people will speed ahead to get even closer to the car in front of them, just so that you can't get in. As if that's saving them time. Some people are just completely wheels off, ignore all rules at all the time. So driving in Houston, we're not the friendliest folk in the world. It can be incredibly stressful. Again, if you're new to our city, don't mouth off at someone in traffic or go crazy or give them a gesture, don't do it. This is Texas, we have and we like our guns. Be (laughs) ye careful. So when I'm in traffic, and again, I've said this before, I don't have a Christian car. I don't have a fish on the, on the back of my car. Doesn't mean that I, I drive fast or crazy. I just, I'm not there yet. So one of the things that I say um, when, when, when I'm in traffic and I'm, and I'm by myself, I like to shout out words of encouragement to my fellow drivers on the freeway. And sometimes I don't just say words of encouragement. They can't hear me, but I think that they can. Kind of like when you're going to yell at your TV set during the Olympics. So, I'll yell out a word of encouragement, or, or a lot of times I'll ask a question. Okay, I'm kind of a, a hack a philosopher and psychologist. I like asking questions. So, when something happens to me in traffic, like I'm trying to get on the on, on the free on the you know the freeway and no one's letting me in, I'm have the blinker on. It's not going to hurt them to slow down just a bit to let me in. I'll say something like. What are you doing, right? What are you doing? That's, that's one of my favorite go-to questions. It's not been answered yet. Another question I ask when I'm, when I'm in traffic and I'm, I'm, I'm going around the city is this. What's your problem? What's your problem, man? What is your problem? What's your problem? You know what the bottom line is? they probably have a problem. Of course they have a problem. Not just their driving, but they have other problems in their life. And and you know what? I have problems. We all have problems. Problems at work, problems at school, problems at home, problems in relationships. We all have problems we're trying to deal with and overcome. I was talking to someone years ago and they said, hey Ben, I can show you a place in Houston where there are thousands of people and they have no problems at all. I said, where is that place? Take me there. And they said, Forest Park Cemetery, right? (laughs) So it was kind of a joke, but but there's a point in that, isn't there? And that to have problems, problems that we're trying to solve, problems we're trying to figure out, problems we're trying to endure, problems we're trying to find the answer to is a part of the human condition. It's who we are. So what I believe is one of the biggest problems that we all deal with, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you're doing, no matter if you're educated, uneducated, rich, poor, somewhere in between, it doesn't matter. We all struggle with this one problem, really this one question. And the question is, why am I here? Why am I here at this place, at this point in my life? Why am I here? What really matters? Is there any meaning to my life given the circumstances that are happening? right now. What's the point? What's the purpose? Now, some people have given up on that. They've given up on that big question as to why we are here. Richard Dawkins, who lives across the pond, is one of those who's given up. And here's an encouraging quote that he has for us here today. He says, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect There is, at the bottom, there's no design, no purpose, no good, no no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. I was watching this uh, video blog that's put out by GQ magazine. And GQ asks these different celebrities, like rappers and athletes and, and actors, when they're on the road... What are the ten things that they can't live without? Now, when you're traveling, what are the ten things you can't live without? And here's some of the things these celebrities said. One of them said, I think it was Kevin Hart. He said, "I can't live without my Nike running hat." you like run when travels. A lot of them said cell phone charger. You got to have that charging brick. I agree with that. Others said skin products. See. We're from Houston, humidity, we don't need the skin products, okay? Sunglasses, one young rapper said a gold chain, uh, cologne, a hoodie. This one guy had 63 hoodies, he said at home, 63, but he has to have that one hoodie on the road. Um, Wine bottle opener, was an NBA player, believe it or not. And then New Balance running shoes. So they just listed all these things as they travel Around in their business and their sports and in entertainment, these are 10 things that they cannot live without when they're on the road. Now, I would say this we're all on a road, we're on this road of life. And I would say we can live without our sunglasses, we can live without our skin products, we can live without our running hat, but we as human beings cannot live without a sense of meaning. We cannot live without. Meaning. One of the most influential books I've ever read in my life is a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And in this book, Frankl talks about how our biggest desire, the burning desire that we all have as human beings is for a sense of meaning and purpose. And he said, if we can find our sense of meaning, if we can find our purpose, then we can survive anything at any time. He says, they can take everything away from you. Everything away from you. They can put you in the darkest, most difficult, most painful situation, but no one can take away your freedom to choose. Your freedom to choose the attitude on how you're gonna face your life and your sense of purpose and meaning. By the way, Viktor Frankl wrote this book when he was enduring three years in Auschwitz. We cannot live without meaning. We can't live without a sense of purpose. A verse I wanna share with you today. It's kind of a verse that, it's almost a transition verse if you are studying the Bible. But I think it's a powerful verse when you let this small golden nugget of truth get into your heart and life. It's in Acts chapter 13, verse 36. Acts 13, verse 36. Now David, referring to King David after he had served God's purpose in his own generation, died and was buried with his ancestors, and so he experienced decay. I like that verse. It's a goal of mine that that can be said about me one day. Ben, having served God's purposes for his generation, died and was buried and decayed and went on to glory. Wouldn't you like to have that verse describe your life? Put your name in there. That that you lived out God's purpose for your time period, your generation, and your life, and your circumstances, the high times, the low times, the suffering, everything. But you lived out God's purpose for your life. And then you passed and went to be with him. Now, for the last two weeks, this summer, we've, we've been talking about discovering the power of God, right? But if you notice, and as, as, as I've been preaching and others have been preaching about the power of God, I've never talked about the power of God directly. Like, how do we discover the power of God? Can we just go plug into it like we plug into electrical socket and get power? No. The, the power of God is not received, it's not appropriated directly, just like happiness. If it's your desire in life to be happy, happiness can't be your desire. Happiness probably is a byproduct of something else. I want to be successful in what I do, successful in my job. Success will come to you, but it's probably a byproduct of something else. The power of God is the same way. The power of God catches us by surprise. It's a product or a result, I should say, of something else. So we started off talking about the power of praise, right? How powerful it is to gather on a Sunday morning and to sing praises and to be a part of a praise and worship service and not to be a spectator, but to be a participant in that. Then we talked about last week, the power of personal praise, how every single day is a day that we need to center our hearts, our minds on the character and knowledge and power of who God is. And today and next week, we're gonna talk about the power of purpose. The power of engaging in God's purpose for your life or re-engaging God's purpose and plan for your life. How do you do that? What does that look like? We've talked about uh, who we are as people. We said that we are the people who praise God. That's who God has designed us to be. We're also the people I believe that God has designed to live out his purposes. So who are we? We are the people who live out his purpose. Let's say that together. We are the people who live out his purpose. One more time. We are the people who live out his purpose. Years ago, someone gave me some, I thought, some really good advice and counsel when I was a young pastor. They said, listen, you need to find someone, a mentor in church history. Find someone in history that's been gone for 100, 200, 300 years. They lived in a different time place, a different time period. Find that person, read their biography, get to know them, read their works, and make them one of your mentors. So as time progressed in my life, eventually I chose someone to kind of invest in to get to know. And uh, that person was a guy by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard uh, is one of the most influential figures in Western history in the last 200 years. His impact on psychology, philosophy, theology, politics, the arts are almost impossible to exaggerate. He was a truly a brilliant thinker, but also he was amazingly creative in the way he communicated the truth that God had laid on his heart. So he is considered the father of existentialism. So all those incredible thinkers, that whether you agree with him or not, that came from him, whether you're talking about you know Wittgenstein or Sartre or Camus or Nietzsche, all of them were influenced by Kierkegaard, you're talking about Karl Barth and theology. You're talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They were all influenced by Kierkegaard. He is a massive, massive influential figure. and We all in the Western society stand in his shadow. So one of the things that Kierkegaard was really passionate about and one of his main tasks was to help people understand their sense of purpose and meaning in life. Here's what he said in one of his quotes, he said, what I really need is to get clear about what I must do, not what I must know, except in so far as knowledge must precede every act. What matters is to find a purpose, to see what it really is that God wills that I shall do. The crucial thing is to find out a truth, which is truth for me, to find the idea for which I am willing to live and die. So Kierkegaard saw his task as helping people discover their sense of meaning and purpose. And he did this in the context of where he lived, which is the country of Denmark. So his job in Denmark, he saw it, was to wake up dead people. Because if you were born in Denmark back when he was born in the 1800s, or if you're born in Denmark today, believe it or not, you were automatically baptized and a member of the Danish Christian church. You're born In Denmark, you're so-called born a, a, a Christian. Kierkegaard said, baloney, hogwash. That is not real. That is untruth. That is dangerous because to really know God and to know God's purposes in your life, you can't just be born a Dane or born an American or born in a Christian home. You have to individually be born again. So Kierkegaard talked about how we as individuals, we as human beings can find our authentic self, how we can find our sense of purpose and meaning in life. And to do this, he talked about life having three stages. He called them three stages on life's way. He also described these three stages as three spheres of existence. And he said, in order to really understand your purpose in life and in in order to be uh, in a sense, actualized and used in a profound way by God and whatever you do in life, you have to progress through these three stages. Or, Or really he was saying a lot of people have to progress through these three stages. So the first stage that he talks about It's what he calls the aesthetic, the aesthetic stage. And he's not really talking about aesthetics like art and design and beauty, things like that. He's talking about uh, the stage in life where all you're concerned about is meeting your own needs. All you're concerned about is finding as much pleasure and much happiness through pleasure as you can. Of course, all little children are born in this aesthetic stage. Teenagers and young people often rebel and say, hey, I want to go find myself. I want to be totally free. I want to experiment. I want to do this. I want to do that. No concern for others. No concern of the consequences. But he says that we can stay and get stuck and fixated in this aesthetic way of living. We can just live by the creed that I'm going to increase everything that I have. I'm going to increase my money, increase my goods. I'm going to indulge myself. I'm going to have the very best and seek to find the very best pleasures in life. And I'm going to impress others. I'm going to post it on Insta Envy to be sure they understand how great and impressive and happy I am and how miserable they are. He said this stage of existence is all about pleasure seeking. I want more, I want more money. I want more experiences. I want more alcohol. I want more drugs. I want more vaping. I want more of this, more of that. He said, you can be a rebellious person or rebellious seeker of pleasure or you can be a refined seeker of pleasure. But in the end, Kierkegaard says, all of this is just an attempt to deal with the boredom and the anxiety and the despair that lies beneath the surface of your life. So I'm gonna stay busy I'm going to be happy. I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to go here. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to have all these things. That is going to make me really, really happy. And I'm just going to continue to stay distracted, 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 distracted. As I pursue these pleasures, I don't want to think about that there's something else out there or someone else out there. I'm going to focus on me and getting my way. And ultimately this type of lifestyle can lead to a sense of narcissism and nihilism, where you see that there's no meaning and no purpose in life. Sometimes when people hit this wall or they hit the ground, they realize perhaps there is another way to live life. And so he talks about this second stage on life's way, which he calls the ethical, stage. And the ethical stage is when you realize that there is a world outside of you. There's a world outside of your own needs, your own wants, your own desires. There's a world outside of pleasure seeking. There's a society, there's a community that I can be a part of. So this particular stage, the ethical stage, it's all about commitment. Commitment. Maybe you commit to go to college, to get a better education. Maybe you commit to a job and to work for a company with certain rules and certain structures and certain mission statement that you're gonna seek to follow. Maybe you commit to a person in marriage and you lay down your life for them and you have kids and you get a mortgage. Maybe you say, I wanna commit and join the military. I I wanna serve my life and lay down my life for others and lay down my life for the country. Or maybe you become a part of a religion, you become a part of a church, and you say, hey, I want to follow a certain moral code. I want to improve myself so I can help others. That's the ethical stage. You're a part of a community. You're a part of society. You seek to be a law-abiding citizen. You seek to follow the commands and laws of God as he lays it out in Scripture, perhaps. Perhaps. Yet, he says, there's yet another stage. He said, there's yet another phase. There's another way of existing that will allow us really to maximize who God has created us to be. Again, he doesn't say that everything about pleasure and aesthetics are wrong or everything about the ethical stage is wrong. Of course not. But he says, if you wanna take it to the next level, you've gotta take the, this is what he's known for, that leap of faith and entered into the authentic way of living, an authentic way of living. He calls it the religious stage, but I like the word authenticity. In the authentic stage, we see ourselves as an individual before a holy and majestic and powerful God. It's just me, not my family, not my spouse, not my children, not my friends, not my country, nothing. I am a human being existing before a holy and a powerful God. And how will I respond to him? How will I respond to his call on God? My life. So if you look at these three stages, these three spheres of existence, you have the the lower, lowest way of living, he says, is that aesthetic, pleasure seeking way. The next middle way of existing is the ethical. And then what he calls the ultimate, the highest plane of living is in that authentic I thou relationship with God. this authentic level is characterized by a sense of humility, grace, and surrender. Humility, grace, and surrender. Think about the story of Isaiah. And I know really all this as you see the connection here flows out of worship. Think about Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter six, he's going into the temple. The King Uzziah had died. He's going in for comfort, but God gives him something else. That ever happened in your life? You come into church and you want comfort and God gives you something else which you really needed. You go to God in prayer and and, and God, you want this, but God gives you that because that's what you really needed. So So Isaiah is there, he's in the temple, And he has this incredible experience. He sees these angelic beings and these angelic beings are surrounded, this throne, this flaming throne. And these angelic beings, these seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He was and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He was and is and is to come. And Isaiah hits the ground on his face. And he says, I am toast. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I am broken and shattered on the ground. That's the encounter part. And then one of those beings takes a tong and gets a hot coal from the altar and he touches Isaiah's unclean lips and says, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are healed. That's the grace, the grace. And then Isaiah says, he hears a voice and the voice says, who shall we send? And Isaiah gets up off the ground with his lips still smoking from the coal from the altar. And he says, "Hear him! I, send me. He's moved from that ethical part of his life to the higher plane of an authentic encounter with the living God. And the living God says, hey, Isaiah, I have a purpose and a plan for you to do. And he starts living it out. God has a purpose and a plan for you. And people who are living in this authentic way of living, this authentic relationship before God, you really can't tell the difference between them and someone else you would see just walking down the street it's not like when you get to the authentic you know stage of life and sphere of existence you're just all of a sudden glowing i've said this a lot when jesus was on earth he didn't glow He didn't have a glow ball over his head like all the paintings. He did not glow. How will we know which one is Jesus? I'll tell you, he's the one that I'm going to kiss on the cheek. That's the one I'm going to betray. He didn't say, oh, look for the glow ball. Okay? Jesus showed us how to live an authentic life before God. But he was a carpenter. He worked hard. He was a teacher. He sweat, he cried, he laughed. He went to funerals and weddings. He lived life. But he lived it in a different way. And he calls us to live life in a different way before God and before others. So when you hear the call of God, it doesn't mean, Now become a missionary or a preacher, preacher, preacher. You probably are going to stay where you are in your job, in your situation. But you're going to look at it and you're going to approach it in an entirely different way. As you begin to walk out God's purpose and God's plan. Maybe you say, well, how is this played out in daily life? Or maybe you're, the question is, okay, I, I've, I believe that. I believe that God used to have a purpose and plan for my life, but you don't know where I am right now. You don't know what's happened to me right now. Listen, and we'll look at this next week, both those questions. God still has a plan for you. If you have a pulse, God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And to tap into that purpose is incredibly, incredibly powerful and life changing. Our problem is we need that. Encounter with God. Our problem is that we need to stop being so closed and and being fixated in this stage or that stage. But we need to take that step and say, God, I am open. I'm open to this authentic relationship with you. And God, I'm open to that call that you have on my life. Here am I. Here am I. Send me. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Let's move forward with Him this week, today, and next Sunday as we begin to tap into God's purpose for our lives.